Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So, Kellen, we get uh, a lot of reviews on the podcast, and they're always super fun to read. Um, but it's been a while since we've read one on the podcast. So this one just came across uh, today, and it said, Came across this via the Collapse sub on Reddit, which has been a fascination as COVID unfolds. I've been listening nonstop, not as a doomer, but more as someone who cares about the natural world and wants to know truly what effects humanity have caused. I don't know how we will all pull through this, but denial can't continue to be part of our process. Thanks, guys, for all the work you've put into this. Uh, you know, I agree that denial can't be a part of the process. I think that's it's a really important part to all of this. You know, the purpose of the podcast is to bring people who might be in denial or ignorance out of it. You know, this person says, I don't know how we will all pull through this. And, and I don't know that we will all pull through this. And Kellen, I think you feel the same. But I think the first step to making any sort of changes in your own life is at least getting out of that phase of denial that collapse is a reality yeah and this review in particular i thought was meaningful because the title of it is more people need to know and i know i've been feeling more and more of this like urgency or more i guess weight importance in helping other people become aware of these concepts yeah and one of the best ways for us to be able to increase awareness with the podcast is through positive reviews. Um, anytime those are left, it helps strengthen our position with search engine optimization. It helps give credibility to people who are looking into the podcast. So if you haven't done so yet, please leave a review and preferably a written review so that as people are scrolling through saying, should I be listening to this? They can read through all those wonderful responses and it gives them a sense of, of trust as they begin the podcast. 
Oh, and it helps Corey and I feel like we're not just wasting our time. Yes, that, that as well. So Kellen, you know, you mentioned this sense of urgency that you've had, and I'm curious if you could tell me a little bit more about why, why are you feeling more urgency? I think it's because I'm seeing more suffering. 2020 and 2021, these have been some crazy years. And I don't think we need to have a pity party because people throughout all generations have dealt with really challenging things. I'm so grateful that I don't live really in any other time in history. We do have it really good. But you look at the political turmoil, the social unrest, all of the divided opinions and social media and the effect that's having on people's mental health. I think there's a lot of despair. And that's one aspect. You look at all of the extreme weather events and all the other effects of climate change. You look at the pandemic and all of the suffering and illness and death there. You look at the disruptions to the supply chains. You look at the extreme poverty and this widening wealth gap. I mean, we can go on and on, but to view this all under one umbrella, one framework that helps us better understand what we can anticipate for the future, it's really hitting home for me that we're only just seeing the beginning of suffering. And that's a depressing statement to make, but I'd like to think that the more people that are becoming aware of this, the more they're taking steps to try to increase their resilience. Hopefully their mental and emotional resilience to all of this. Hopefully their physical preparedness for whatever comes their way. Like I would love to know that more and more people are setting themselves up to get through this in a much better position than they would otherwise. And if on top of that, people can be making changes to mitigate the effects of climate change, or at least not contribute to them as much, or they are more inspired to do things that are helping with other social issues, it's almost challenging to think of anything that could be more important than that. So that's a long way of me just saying, I feel the urgency because there's suffering, that suffering is going to increase. And I would love to know that we can do something about decreasing that. Yeah, it's crazy that I get more fulfillment from this, you know, the several hours a week that we spend researching, recording and releasing the podcast than I do, you know, with all the hours that I spend in my day job, for example. Like I know that the impact that we make, the number of people we reach is still relatively small compared to what we would like. You know, the the number of people we would love to reach with this is much bigger. And there's this urgency to to make that happen and sort of this frustration that the whole world isn't hearing it. Whether it's from us or from someone else, if people could just wake up and realize what's going on around them, what's happening. I think it's a worthwhile cause to, to strive towards. One of the pieces of the urgency that you mentioned that just keeps surprising me day after day is supply chains and what we are seeing happening globally. I mean, you've got the UK right now that is just in a supply chain mess, right? And they are like legitimately facing having some shortages in, in grocery stores and in all the luxuries and things that, that they're used to worried about not having a, a normal Christmas because of a lack of supplies. A lot of that is coming from Brexit, but that's mixed with, uh, with the issues with COVID-19. And it's interesting because we've talked over and over and over again about how complex we are, about how fragile supply chains are and how really the problems that we'll face in collapse is because of a combination of a bunch of things happening at once. But the the more you increase your complexity, the more likely it is that more of those things are going to happen at once. And so with the UK right now, they're experiencing that because of COVID-19 and Brexit mixed with all the other things, small and large, that are combining to make that happen. 
Well, today's episode is on one very specific part to the supply chain or one piece to that supply chain, but that is having a pretty big effect on the world as a whole. Yeah, so let's dive into what we're talking about here specifically. And to do so, I want to ask you something, Corey. Bring it on. What do small computers snack on? Oh, no. Uh, is it microchips? <laughs> you got it. Yes. Dad joke of the year award right there. Yeah, what do you call a guy who works part-time oh, on no. a train? There's more. <laughs> a semiconductor. You got it. Oh, my gosh. I'm so good at this. Yeah, so today we're going to be talking about this major crisis, this shortage of microchips. Wait, hold on. So we got to go back to the jokes. In doing your research, did you specifically type into your computer like semiconductor jokes or did you just happen to run into those or did you already know them? Actually, 30 seconds ago while you were talking, I Googled on my phone semiconductor jokes because I feel like we started this episode so depressingly. I feel like we start every episode so depressingly, but I do appreciate you bringing some um, some dad humor to it. <laughs> dad jokes are the best. Yeah, here we were talking about all the suffering and how that's all going to increase. I thought we need, needed to lighten it up a little bit. Well, Kellen, you have you fixed the world with your humor. That's all it takes. Okay, so microchips, sometimes people just call them chips or computer chips. As you hear about the shortage, you might hear people talk about it as a semiconductor shortage, or you might hear the term integrated circuit. In all of that, we're talking about these incredible feats in technology. You know, I think people generally know what a microchip is. You find it in many of our electronic devices. And with the way that technology has advanced in consumer products, they're in so many of the things that we use. You think about smartphones, you think about home appliances, um, you know, vehicles, even like electric toothbrushes and people have smart toasters and you've got medical equipment and agricultural equipment. And across the board, we're just using more and more of these microchips. In fact, some have termed the industry, you know, the semiconductor microchip industry as new oil because we're so reliant on it and it's such a money-making industry. But these microchips are to the point technologically that, you know, they, they say it is rocket science just trying to create these. They literally have billions of tiny little transistors and I'm not really savvy when it comes to understanding exactly how, you know, computer science and in this case, microchips work. But I do know that those tiny little transistors act like gates that allow electrons to pass through them or not pass through them. Or, or some people kind of describe it as tiny little switches. But IBM's newest chip has 50 billion transistors and it's all packed into a space the size of a fingernail. So to be able to do that, that's extremely complicated. You know, they say building a factory that can create modern microchips can cost like $10 billion. So it's not the kind of thing where you can just say, hey, we need a bunch of these microchips. We're going to spin up a factory. It's a highly technical, a very expensive process to get that up and running. And so you mentioned a lot of things that these chips are used for, um, maybe to go through those a little bit more. So vehicles, you had said, which I know we're hearing about that a lot right now, that vehicles are one of the hardest hit with the current shortage. But I think there are a lot more that maybe we don't hear as much about, like the medical equipment, agricultural equipment that we don't really think about. Uh, obviously, there are things like smartphones, um, game consoles. They're used in things like um, 
video cards, which affects in a lot of ways like Bitcoin or cryptocurrency mining. And these companies that manufacture them, they focus, they give their primary focus because they're most profitable on the newer technologies. Um, apparently, you know, there's it's a technology that's always changing. And so with those changes, these big factories have to update their existing processes and, and infrastructure to be able to facilitate the new kinds of chips. And the new kinds of chips are the ones that are the most profitable and the highest margin. And so what happens in a lot of these cases, and we'll get to why this is important in a second, um, the older chips are the ones that are getting more and more frequently left behind and are not made a priority. And it just so turns out that vehicles, for example, are an example of those older types of chips. So one thing I want to point out as we're diving into this, we are in no way saying that a shortage or a supply chain issue with microchips is going to cause the collapse of society. But there's no doubting that right now supply chain failures are happening. They're cascading throughout the world. And supply chain failures in and of themselves could very easily cause collapse. We decided to do this episode on semiconductors and microchips this week because we felt like it was a good representation of the types of issues that uh, these types of supply chain failures can cause. And we thought it would be pretty cool to go through and talk about the specifics of why this is happening and the effects that it will have. You can use these same principles that we're going to talk about in this episode and connect that with any supply chain failures that are happening or that could happen in the future. So I don't think it's really news to anyone that there is currently a shortage in semiconductors and these microchips right now. Companies are having a really hard time accessing them, and that is causing a lot of issues in a lot of different parts of the supply chains currently. And I think this example of a supply chain crisis or supply chain shortage is a really good one to use. You know, we've talked about supply chains in the past. This just highlights how interdependent we are. You know, we've talked about how complex society is. And I think at one point we mentioned, you know, a, a meal from McDonald's, all the hundreds, maybe thousands of people that were involved in one little part of getting that meal to you. And it's a reminder that as we increase our convenience, we do that with a price and that price is our independence. So we've got stuff that happens on the other side of the globe that directly impacts what happens here. And with everything we've talked about, all that we anticipate that will be taking place around the world, um, it's really important for us to understand how it plays out in a real life situation like what we're seeing right now with these microchips. Yeah, well said. And specifically with microchips, like you just explained, they are very complicated. You know, in a lot of ways, microchips are making life more convenient when you can kind of make everything smart. It takes the work out of our hands, right? And these microchips work to make appliances or devices smart. But with that convenience comes um, a lot of complexity and difficulty as well. Because for example, um, from what I read, most of the lead times on making a new microchip is between 18 and 26 weeks. Now we're talking half a year just to, to get those chips processed. So any flexibility or change, any volatility in demand can cause issues because there, there is not a simple way to adjust the supply. And I think that is where we begin to start to see, at least in part, the cause of the current shortages that we're seeing. Yeah, there were some statements I saw as I was doing some research that I thought were really interesting. Some quotes. This one is from somebody, I won't be able to pronounce his name quite right. I think it's Pawan Joshi. Apparently, he's the executive vice president 
at a supply chain software company, but he says, there is no room left anymore for error or unexpected events. It is all squeezed out. This means you can't afford a single mistake because there is no longer any buffer. So he's talking about just how fragile our supply chains are because, again, those assumptions we make, the things that we depend on, if anything unexpected happens, it's going to throw all of it off. And as it relates to this semiconductor supply chain issue, Here's a professor from Syracuse University. His name's Patrick Penfield. He says, right now we have a global supply chain in crisis. We've just never, ever seen anything of this magnitude impact us before. And that's just one opinion about how severe this is. But it highlights that we're seeing something, you know, this supply chain shortage in particular is something that's affecting every one of us. And many of us probably aren't even aware. But it's doing things to all sorts of markets. It's doing things to the economy and prices, to certain product shortages. It has this ripple effect, this domino effect that is hitting all of us. And yet here we are talking about the supply chain breakage of just one industry. And, you know, something that's interesting is that they were saying that it was likely that we were going to see a shortage in these semiconductors, even without COVID-19. It certainly wouldn't have been as bad as it is now, but we were already headed in this direction anyway. So part of the reason is that there's just been an increase in demand and that increase has been substantial. This is in part because the products that we were already using that had semiconductors in them were needing more of as developing parts of the world have more access to smartphones, more access to vehicles, for example, we were increasing the number of those required. On top of that, though, we're also coming up with new things to use semiconductors for. As the internet of things is exploding, there are more and more products that in the past did not require a microchip that now do. So from 2019 to 2020, there was a 6.5% increase year over year, which doesn't seem like that much of an increase, but was still substantial. But the big kicker was that from 2020 to 2021, there was a 30% increase in the demand of microchips. And a large part of that was because of coronavirus. As people were starting to work from home or stopped working and were held home in lockdowns, they started to realize they needed more things that required microchips like home security, for example, or, you know, new laptops to, to use to work from home with. People were investing more in vehicles. Those types of things led to those big increases. And I'll jump in and say, I know it wasn't all just work-related things. People were also bored. So there was a big uptick in people trying to buy TVs and gaming systems and tablets, that kind of thing. Yeah, thanks for pointing that out. Absolutely. So as demand increased, supply was at the same time constrained because of lockdowns. Plants were being shut down. People were being quarantined. You know, whole factories were testing positive for COVID-19. And so the supply dwindled. And pretty quickly, companies were buying up the semiconductors that the manufacturers had basically in excess. Anything that they had stored for the, the variability in demand was quickly used up. And because of the long lead times that we discussed earlier, it wasn't just like they could snap their fingers and increase the manufacturing and thus the supply. Yeah, I know that U.S. semiconductor companies make up half of all global sales. And yet only like 12% of the global manufacturing is done here in the States. 
most of the production of these semiconductors happens in Southeast Asia. You got China, you got Taiwan. Um, I know some of the areas that have been really heavily impacted are Malaysia and Vietnam. And so like you talked about, these factories were having disruptions. They're dealing with COVID. They've got factory workers getting sick. They're shutting down. All of that was happening. But another huge factor here is that ports were shutting down in Asia from COVID. You know, some of them, sometimes for weeks or months, apparently about 90% of the world's electronics go through one of China's ports. I should probably look up how to pronounce this, but it's Yan Tian or maybe Yan Tian. But this port in China, from what I found, can handle like 36,000 of these 20-foot containers every day. And I know that it shut down and had some disruptions. At one point, it shut down for like a week. And hundreds of container ships were just left waiting to dock. And then all of that congestion spilled over into these other ports. And again, it has this kind of domino effect. Apparently, shutting down that one port for a week can take months to recover. Yeah, so you're saying that with all the other products that they were having trouble getting out of those ports, the actual chips themselves were getting basically stuck in the places where they were being developed, couldn't be sent to the end users who would put them in their products. Yeah, not only could they not get the chips themselves out to the companies that would then put them in their products, but even many of the finished products were stuck there. So there were multiple levels of what was taking place at these ports that was causing disruptions for this supply chain industry. I know part of it was that um, companies, especially automakers, were thinking that demand was going to decrease on vehicles because we were going through economic hardships. I think a lot of companies thought we were heading into severe recession, which we did, but they underestimated how much consumers or what types of things consumers were going to be purchasing. And vehicles was one of those. And so as demand rose for vehicles, automakers had you know canceled orders for chips or hadn't at least hadn't increased the number of chips that they needed. And so many of them were stuck having to wait for those chips. And I mean, there are, you've seen the photos or videos of, you know, in Kentucky, the Kentucky Speedway, just thousands of Ford trucks that were parked there because they could not get the chips in them. The manufacturing process of these trucks was complete except for getting the chips needed. And so they had all these trucks built that they couldn't yet sell that that weren't functional. And we'll come back to some of the reasons that the automotive industry was hit particularly hard for this and how hard they've been hit. But first, there's a few reasons in general that there was a shortage in semiconductors beyond what we've talked about. And one of those is trade wars. You know, President Trump had issued some um, declarations regarding trade with China and specifically some of the Chinese semiconductor businesses were targeted, which meant that there was tension and strain in those supply chain relationships. There was also a lot of tension, and there is a lot of tension between China and Taiwan. And Taiwan actually houses the largest semiconductor foundry. Uh, Foundry is what they call the manufacturing facilities in the world. So there's a really large manufacturer in China called the Semiconductor Manufacturing International Corporation, and the United States government had placed restrictions on them, which made it harder for them to sell the companies with American ties. And so those American companies who needed those chips then had to go to Taiwan or Samsung, but those places were already at maximum capacity because of the increasing demand from others. And to add to this list of factors, I just want to read a statement from an article, and we can post the article 
in the episode description, but it says this, There aren't many chip manufacturing plants in the world, and the few that were running during the pandemic were subject to a series of unlucky weather events that delayed the manufacturing process further. Japan's Renesis plant, which creates almost one-third of the chips used in cars around the world, was severely damaged by a fire, while winter storms in Texas forced some of America's only chip plants to halt production. Producing these chips also requires a lot of water, and severe drought in Taiwan has also affected production. And I'll just make the comment, you know, Corey, you and I had a conversation recently on one of our bonus episodes that you can find if you support us on Patreon. We talked about how only a small percentage of the population believes that they're being affected by climate change, or will be affected by climate change. And that came from a Yale study. And here we have all these extreme weather events that are disrupting supply chains currently. And that's the case here with semiconductors. Yeah, along with that is that in Taiwan, which I mentioned they have the largest foundry for these semiconductors, it's called TSMC. Um, They use more than 15 million gallons of purified clean water every day. And in 2021, Taiwan experienced its worst drought in more than half a century. So they've had problems accessing enough water for the creation of these semiconductors. So there's another natural reason why semiconductors are short. And also I read just a little bit that the silicon that's used in these semiconductors to make them is actually the same that's used in COVID-19 vaccine vials. And so the increase in vaccines has actually caused sort of a supply issue for the raw ingredients needed to make the semiconductors in the first place. And that's not to say that silicon is like a rare resource, but still with our just-in-time processes for manufacturing and distribution, silicon processors were not expecting to have such a huge increase in demand either, which caused the competition for that resource. So we talk about all these reasons why this shortage has happened, and it is a very severe shortage. It's causing major disruptions to many industries. It's likely going to take another year or two before it gets back to a state of equilibrium, where supply and demand are generally at the same level. But just to emphasize the impact of this, you know, an article from earlier this year had said just U.S. manufacturers of vehicles would be making anywhere between 1.5 to 5 million less cars this year than what they had anticipated. You know, I saw something just from this month at the time that we're recording this, that Toyota in the month of September alone would be producing 430,000 less vehicles than what was initially planned. You know, Nissan, they said they'd make half a million less vehicles in 2021. And going back to the the ripple effect, I know like used car prices have gone way up, at least in the U.S. And it's because there's this shortage of new cars like we are citing here. And you think about all the other disruptions this causes. You think about what a company like Toyota has to do with their labor force when they're going to be producing 430,000 less vehicles in a single month. Yeah, I saw that just GM alone had cut its production by 200,000 vehicles for this year, and that the global automotive industry was taking a $110 billion hit on their revenue because of the semiconductor shortage. And Toyota was cutting, like you just said, all 430,000 cars. It was a 40% reduction in their production, which is just insane. And what's crazy to me is look at the stock market. Look at the stocks of these companies and what's happening. 
they're not crashing, right? So that number one goes to show me that the stock market is just crap and all speculation anyway. But number two, these companies are still, they're still finding ways to make their money in part by raising the prices of their cars. Um, you know, they're raising the prices in order to, yes, make up for the increased cost of these microchips, but also to increase their profit margins so that they still remain profitable. And many of them are. And it's frustrating because it's just another way in which, okay, the wealthy can afford to pay the difference, but the people who need vehicles are not able to make up, you know, that increase in, in the cost. And like you said, this isn't just affecting brand new cars. People who, who might be struggling financially are not going out and buying brand new trucks from Ford. They're buying used vehicles, but those are also increasing severely in price because they're getting all bought up. And I know a lot of these auto manufacturers also took away features from their vehicles so that they could put them out onto the market. So certain cars that did have navigation systems before, they pulled those out because they just didn't have the microchips to be able to make that happen. And here we're talking about all the trickle-down costs. You know, you mentioned somebody who isn't trying to buy a new car. They just need an old beater car, but even the price of used cars goes way up. And that's just in the vehicle industry. Across all these different industries, it affects everybody uh, in the in the way that we see the prices come through. Yeah, if you're trying to buy a one of the new PlayStations, for example, um, they're pretty much impossible to get your hands on. And the ones that are being sold, they're being purchased and then put back on the market at 50 to 100% the MSRP. People are selling them for up to double what they bought them for because they're in such high demand. And it's scary to think that, you know, these are these are products that are sort of luxuries, right? In a lot of ways, especially like video consoles and things like that, video game consoles. But it shows how quickly something can disappear, become unavailable and only become available at a very high cost. We had talked uh, earlier, I had referred to the idea that the auto industry has been especially hit hard by this. And one of the main reasons is that the auto industry is using those older chips. In most cases, they're not. It's not a lot of new technology, and so it's less profitable for these companies, the foundries who are making them, to focus on them. They're focusing on the new and the flashy, and, and that's one of the main reasons that the automobile industry has been having such a hard time. But one more thing to point out with automobiles before we move on past that is that electric vehicles especially use these these semiconductors like a lot you know, your, your electric vehicle is basically a computer with wheels. And this just goes to show once again, the fragility of the idea of renewables and the, the difficulties that electric vehicles are facing and that they're going to face as they become more and more of a, a priority. You know, you've got all these countries and all these companies that are talking about making it so that all the vehicles on the road by 2030 or 2040 or 2050 are electric. And it's just pretty insane to see how even just right now, electric vehicles are facing these challenges because of the semiconductor shortage. What's it going to be like when we're literally trying to replace billions of vehicles with these more intense, more complicated, more complex semiconductors? Yeah, and that replacement cost, you know, when something gets so big and complex that you can't really maintain it, think about how many smart devices the average home had a decade ago compared to now. And when people start having all of their appliances with these microchips and even their toothbrushes and they've got TVs and gaming systems and, you know, you end up with 50, 100 devices 
potentially in a single home. And if the average lifespan of those products is six or seven years, maybe 10 at the most, those all will be replaced. And so it's this exponential growth that we're only going to see continue in the microchip industry, which is why I'm looking at an article right now titled, The Senate Just Agreed $52 billion to boost U.S. chip making. It's going to take a lot more. Yeah, on that note, you know, I, I've seen similar numbers for different countries around the world. South Korea was something like $450 billion of investments into semiconductor foundries to try and compete with Taiwan and all these countries that are trying to create them within their own borders so that they have control of their own supply chain locally, which is smart. It's how everything should be done. But it's interesting to see now how many different countries are putting out in the tens or even hundreds of billions of dollars for, for just that. Yeah, I know it's actually one of the contributing factors as to why China would love to seize Taiwan and why there's some major political tensions there. But speaking of political tensions, oftentimes one of the reasons that international conflict doesn't escalate is because we have this interdependence. So it makes us fragile to depend so strongly on other countries for our supply chains. And yet at the same time, as soon as we're making all of our own microchips and we're doing more and more here within our borders, the less incentive we have to avoid conflict or to resolve tensions with other nations. So it's kind of a catch-22 there. But anyways, all the tens of billions, potentially hundreds of billions of dollars that need to be spent just to get our own control within the U.S. of this one supply chain isn't going to happen immediately. This kind of thing takes years. And again, there's all these other supply chains where we are depending on this global network of trade. And here, as we talk about collapse, we're anticipating kind of moving from crisis to crisis. And if, you know, a single product or device requires materials or parts from a dozen different places around the world, and the world is going to keep getting hit with more natural disasters and political turmoil and financial crises and diseases, either we have to drastically change the way our markets work, or we'll simply have to get used to more and more of these disruptions, and those disruptions will get more and more severe. One way or another, we're progressing on this road of collapse. Yeah, you think about all the things that we talked about with why the shortage is happening with semiconductors, and it's kind of this perfect storm, right? We talked about all these natural disasters that are happening, the drought, a fire in one factory, storms in another, the COVID-19 pandemic, and people getting sick and there being lockdowns, increased demand, you know, increased political tensions. It's a perfect storm of all of those things. But like you just said, all of those things are going to continue to intensify and get worse. It's not like it was some random thing and all these things happened to just converge all at once. And that's what caused a shortage of semiconductors. We're seeing those same things come together and cause shortages in other areas as well. And as those things intensify in the future, as our interconnectedness as our complexity increases and we depend on those things more and more, the disruptions are going to become more and more brutal. And so in this specific example, countries are trying to overcome that by making their supply chains more resilient, by making their supply chains more local. And I think there's a lot to learn from that in our individual lives and in our communities in that if we want any chance at being able to be resilient in the face of supply chain collapse, we have to make our own local supply chains more resilient more of the things that are necessary to life for us, we need to be finding ways to produce and distribute locally. 
And the challenge there is that whether you're talking about an individual or you're talking about a nation, in order to become more resilient, that takes a lot of investment. It's cheaper, it's more convenient to specialize and have this complex network, right? In the case of semiconductors, hey, Southeast Asia, you're really good at making this. You've already put the investment in. Costs us a lot less, at least in the short term, to just buy from you instead of having to build our own. Just like for me individually, to go buy produce at the store, at least in the short term, is a lot less expensive than trying to get all of the tools and the soil and the seed and the time investment, you know, everything it takes to grow my own produce. Yeah, that's an important distinction. But I I think that the costs don't always have to come financially. I think a lot of the costs of resilience comes from time, the time to do the research, the time to learn, the time to, to build those sort of local structures. And maybe it requires some upfront capital, but it's something that in the long run actually decreases your costs. You know, Toyota, for example, has been surprisingly resilient up to this point. This is the first time they've had any reductions in in production. And that was because they have a program called Rescue, which is basically a, a way that they have strengthened their supply chains by making sure they have access to information from hundreds of thousands of different suppliers so they can get around bottlenecks when they come and they can also foresee them. Now, it's at the point now where there's enough failures in the supply chain that they, that they haven't been able to find a way around it. But it served them well up till now. And it wasn't necessarily that they had to buy a whole lot of semiconductors and hoard them, right? It was just that they did the work in advance to be able to find more resilience in the supply chain. Now, there are companies like Huawei that actually did. Um, they hoarded a bunch of chips and they started buying them up because they could foresee that this was going to happen. And they've been extremely resilient as well. So, I mean, that works too. When it comes to things like food storage, you know, I I think it's important to have food storage, not because you think that it's going to like make you all out resilient, right? But it helps buffer the little hiccups in supply chains, the lockdowns, you know, that type of thing. But it doesn't have to necessarily cost more. If you over time can spend a little bit more at the store to buy, you know, get yourself up to three months of food storage, and then you cycle through that, in the end, you're not spending any more money than you would have as long as you're consuming all of that food and not letting it go bad. With gardening, yeah, I think the upfront capital might be expensive, but even in the not so long run, it's going to save you money because you can get a whole lot more produce out of your own garden than what you can go to the store and pay for for that same amount of money. You know, we just went and picked like 10 pounds of raspberries at my brother's in-law's house and they invited us to come over and pick because they had just picked three days ago and got the same amount and they're going to pick again in three days and get that again. You know, 10 pounds of raspberries at the supermarket would cost me quite a bit of money, right? But knowing that they've been able to get harvest after harvest after harvest of those, mostly because of the time that they put in, not so much because of any, you know, huge initial cost. Yeah, and as we make this comparison here to individual resilience and resilience on a larger scale, like with nations and these semiconductors as an example, I know that China started kind of hoarding and stockpiling a bunch of these microchips when the shortage started taking place, which like you said, if somebody does that, that helps them become more resilient. If we in the U.S. were able to have kind of that buffer, then we wouldn't have been hit so hard. And on an individual level, we use the example of produce. Like if you've got some food storage in place, if you can develop that buffer, then you're not going to be having to compete with others when a shortage happens. 
In our interview a few weeks ago with Tom Murphy, we asked him what he anticipates for the future. And I know he mentioned more and more competition internationally for resources. And personally, when something difficult happens, I don't want to be out there having to compete. I would love to either have my own source, like we talk about a garden, or have my own stockpile. We talk about food storage, or ideally both. But again, it goes back to this idea of resilience and how important that is. And obviously, there's way more to that than we can discuss in this episode. But I think it's important for everyone to just always have sort of that, you know, if there's an action that you're going to take to better yourself, your families, your neighborhoods, your communities, it is have resilience in mind, find ways that you can make yourself resilient and help make others resilient as well. One thing that I'll add here before we end, you know, slowly acquiring a stockpile over time does not do the the supply chain any damage. When you think of, you know, someone who went and hoarded toilet paper during coronavirus pandemic at the very beginning, they were doing damage to the supply chain by hoarding that. They were making it unavailable to other people. They were making it so that those stores couldn't be restocked with the normal amount of toilet paper. But if you are someone who goes out and buys an extra package of toilet paper once a month or once every few months for a year, you've built yourself up a good supply and you haven't done any damage to the supply chains. They were still able to keep the inventory up. And then when the, when the shortage does come, because you had that stockpile, you are not adding to the toilet paper shortage problem because you've got it already. You're not one of the ones standing in line as soon as it comes to the store, you're running in and grabbing it. You're actually helping to relieve the problem because you're not being a bigger burden on it. I think the more people that act resiliently, even if for selfish reasons, you're still doing the larger system a service in the long run by not becoming a burden when that shortage happens, if that makes sense. Yeah, I agree. Well, we've talked about supply chains in general in the past, but to be right in the midst of a pretty severe supply chain failure and to see the way that's playing out, I think is really enlightening. So for me, it's been helpful being able to discuss the causes of it, the impacts of it, And as we extrapolate that to other potential supply chain failures that could come down the line in the future, it does make me want to be that much more resilient. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.